I'm going to actually invite you to turn to your Bibles right away to 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, as I think about more and more, and I know that most of you would identify with this and be fully convinced of this anyways, but for the sake of just kind of continual encouragement of the things that we know most, one of the best ways I can shepherd you as one of your pastors is to point you to the words of Christ, to point you to the word that God has given through multiple faithful men uh, in generations past and that we get to benefit from today. So as you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm actually going to read starting in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 12. And again, uh, if you're new with us this morning or you were gone last week, we started a new series through the, the book of First Peter. Uh, we finished, we concluded our, our membership series, and I know even just during the equipping hour before service started, we did a bunch of testimonies. Next week, we have more testimonies. If that is something that you're still uh, seeking to do or curious about, we make that open for you, and feel free to just come, and you can sign up online. Um, and we'd love to, to sit with you and actually just get to know you a little bit better through the way God has wooed you into a saving relationship with Himself. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You'll recall from last week, um, and if you were not with us last week, let me just give you a, a quick just context overview. Peter is addressing uh, believers, both Gentiles as well as Jews, in the, the, the area called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey today. And he's addressing many churches that exist there. Now, again, uh, the, the person who is the emperor at the time is Nero, and Nero, uh, well, 
He's not the nicest of all emperors, and uh, he's known for many atrocities, and I won't go into any details uh, regarding uh, his infamous record, but I will say this, that uh, he, persecution was going to rapidly increase. It had already begun through the Jewish people. It had already begun through the Roman Empire. Everybody thought these Christians were a peculiar people. They were uh, people that were kind of weird. They ate the body of Christ, and they drank the blood of Christ. They were almost like cannibals. At least that was their thought process on the matter. And so they were looking at these Christians, even though they were also known to be the nicest, most loving, most accepting of people. They had some weird practices. And so there was this kind of a, either at best a confusion, but most often a resistance or a hostility towards these believers. And so we see that Peter is writing this letter to these believers for the way, for really for the sake of encouraging them to, to help them endure through not just current sufferings and trials, but what would really eventually be pretty extreme all-out suffering for the cause of Christ, for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter, and right off the bat, he doesn't waste any time whatsoever. Peter encourages these suffering believers by helping them take their mind off their current circumstances and really redirecting them on to something of far greater value, specifically the, inter- the eternal inheritance that awaits them. And so Peter's going, hey, right from the bat, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, brothers and sisters, let me just point your focus. Let me just kind of redirect the spotlight back off of your circumstances and onto this incredible, awesome, great, glorious salvation that God has provided for you. In fact, Peter would go on, and he will do this continually throughout his letter. He says he, help, he helps these believers understand that the way in which we navigate through suffering and trials of various kinds, the way in which we do so in a very faithful manner is by not focusing or fixating on the sufferings and wallowing in them as, as, as a process, but instead we endure through these sufferings with joy and with triumphant hope because our focus is on salvation, a salvation that God has provided for all of us. Now, this is no ordinary salvation. Because as he makes it very clear, he says, this salvation was initiated by God the Father before the foundations of the earth were even created. This is a salvation that was made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is a salvation that is made secure by the Holy Spirit and who is at work right now in our lives to make us holy or more Christ-like. I mean, think about it, brothers and sisters. The, the Godhead, the three members of the Trinity or the triunity of God is working in full cooperation, perfect unity to save people from their sin. God is at work even now to save people from their sin. After all, isn't, is not this the the message of the Bible, right? Is not this, is this, isn't this the, the message or the grand redemptive theme that we continually come back to as a point of reference, right? When you start from Genesis and go all the way to the book of Revelation, this is all part of God's grand narrative of how He is going to save people from their sin. Of course, it does kind of beg the question, why in the world is there sin in the first place? 
And of course, we see that very clearly spelled out in a, in a kind of a quick summation fashion. We see that in the beginning, God created everything. In other words, the universe, the earth, the solar system, everything that is in existence is not a cosmic accident. It's not just a, uh, it's not a mathematical probability. It is a first cause that God has actually created all things. And what he created was good. It was perfect. Everything that God creates is perfect because God is perfect. And so he cannot create anything that's not perfect. But of course, as you read along very quickly, we see that he also created the human race. And Adam and Eve are the first human beings that he created. And God gave them one command. And we see that ultimately, uh, long story short, uh, they rebelled against what God had called them to do. That rebellion is what the Bible refers to as sin. Sin is anything that is contrary to the person or the character of God and as well as the standard of God. And because of Adam and Eve's rebellion or their choice to not do what God called them to do, we see that through them, sin or this, this spirit of rebellion entered into the human race. Therefore, because we are technically descendants of Adam and Eve, we inherit their nature, which, by the way, is now fallen. It is now sinful. And therefore, all people who are born from Adam and Eve on are, are born with a corrupted or sinful nature. And this sinful nature ultimately separates us from the relationship with God that we were created to experience in the first place. This sinful nature also makes us guilty and deserving of eternal punishment and death. This sinful nature makes it impossible for people to save themselves. Now, if we were to put the period there and say, and close the book and say, that's it, that would be called a Greek tragedy. But thankfully, that is not where the story ends. Yes, things are bleak. Everything was once good, and now they're terrible in a sense. All of God's creation has been negatively influenced or corrupted to some degree because of Adam and Eve's choice to rebel, and ultimately they were deceived, which is a whole other backstory we'll get to in a moment. But we see that the story does not end there because God loves the world. God loves people. He loves his creation. And so we see from Genesis 3 on that God, that God promises to, to, to provide a redeemer. He promises to redeem people from the enslavement of sin by sending his son, his son Jesus Christ, to endure the necessary sacrifice for our sin on a cross. And so we see the promise of Scripture is this, anyone who turns to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and who puts their full trust in Him is promised eternal life. That happened a long time ago. But you know what? Today, even this morning, God is in the business. He is actively working to save people from their sin. God is in, is, in the, is in the business and the process right now of actively redeeming and restoring what has been corrupted or separated. And guess what? You and I are beneficiaries of His grace and His mercy. 
The fact is, salvation or the salvation of people and the redemption of creation matters so much to God that He commissioned all kinds of other agents to, to, be, to be announcers, to be heralds, to be declarers of this good news, right? So we see on one hand, Peter makes it clear that God is responsible for, for providing this incredible and glorious salvation, and he see, we see also see that God raised up agents who would be responsible for the announcement of this glorious salvation. In our text, specifically in verses 10 through 12, we see four other groups of people that God raises up and uses to announce this salvation, this imperishable, eternal inheritance. The first group of people are the prophets, right? God raises up prophets to be announcers of this good news, of this redeeming promise that there's a Messiah, one who will come and will make all things new, who will reconcile people into right relationship with God. Now, a a prophet in the Old Testament sense was a person who represents God to the people. To contrast that, when you think about a priest, a priest represents the people to God, but a prophet represents God to the people. So, they communicate God's Word to people, which can include both you know, prophetic future events as well as present time events. Some prophets wrote down what they received by the Lord, like the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Isaiah and many of the minor prophets. By the way, they're not minor because they were, had a lesser ministry. They're minor because their books were shorter. That's it. But then there was other prophets as well, like Elijah and Elisha. God also raised them up. They were prophets for the Lord. They just didn't write down what they had seen necessarily. They were just verbal prophets only. But as I said before, from Genesis all the way through, God has raised up prophets to tell people, to, to, to give hope and to instill confidence and assurance that God is on the move, that He's doing something. That people are not left to their own demise, that they're not just left to, to wallow without any hope, but he's saying, no, I am doing something glorious and great, and I'm already on the move. I'm actively on the move, right? Aslan is on the move. What does Moses say in Deuteronomy 18? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own brothers. It is him you shall listen What does Jeremiah 23, 5 say? For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom, and he will do what is just and right throughout the land. This is all prophecy, a foretelling. It's pointing to someone in a future way of the promised Redeemer, the Messiah, which we find out, as we know, Jesus Christ. But the one question that really piqued the prophet's interest as they were receiving divine downloads from from God the Father was this, who was going to be the Messiah? And at what time would the Messiah come? Again, they know that this is going to happen, but they don't know when it's going to happen, and they don't know who it's actually going to be. We do know that it's going to be through the, the, the line of David, King David. So, okay, that's helpful. That narrows the scope a little bit. But then what? And you know what? God doesn't ultimately tell them. But he gives enough revelation to help them understand that they were not actually serving themselves or their generation, but God was giving them divine downloads to serve the generations to come. 
So they realized they were not serving themselves, but others. And even Peter, as he hearkens back from one who has lived hundreds and hundreds of years later, he writes in 2 Peter 1.19, as he relays that we were firsthand, we were eyewitness, we have eyewitness accounts, we were there. It's like the, 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 the testimony that holds most weight oftentimes. I saw it with my own eyes, but actually Peter kind of changes the, the, the confidence. He goes, not only did we see it in our own eyes, but he says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote. So even Peter even though he's, he's testifying to firsthand accounts, he's actually saying, but look at what the prophets foretold long ago. And look how many prophecies have come into fruition or come true to the detail. So God raised up prophets to announce, to proclaim, to be heralds of this glorious salvation. But we also see that a, the third member of the Trinity, right, The Holy Spirit is also actively working, not just in providing and guaranteeing the salvation, but also in helping empower others to announce the salvation. In fact, you have to understand it this way. The only reason why the prophets knew what they knew and the only reason why they did what they did is because of the Spirit of Christ in them that empowered them to do that. In other words, the Old Testament prophecies were not just a, were not, they weren't just a, a compilation of works by really smart people. We should not understand the prophets or the prophecies as a, a conspiracy devised by influential people with an agenda. That's not what the prophecies were. No, these were words of God superintended through human writers by the inspiration of the Spirit. What does Peter say in 2 Peter 1? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, not to get too far down the rabbit trail, but again, as we understand the Scriptures that we hold in our hands, as we understand the Bible we oftentimes refer to as God's Word to us, we must understand that the Scriptures, which include the prophets, are not just a compilation of writings by 40 different people over a 1,500-year span of history. That is true historically, but they are actually the words of God. Which is why, we, why the Bible, we regard it as authoritative on all matters for life and for godliness. When we open the Scriptures, God speaks. And we would do well to listen, right? There's a third group of people raised up by God to be announcement, announcers of this glorious salvation. And that is the apostles. The New Testament apostles had a unique advantage because they, were, they, they had the Old Testament prophecies, but they also discovered that they were living in a time and a place in God's redemptive history in which they saw many of these prophecies come true or, or, or be fulfilled. And as we observe in the New Testament letters, as soon as Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, and as soon as they, the, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, the light bulb just kind of turned on. 
Again, even when Jesus died, they were depressed. They didn't understand God's redemptive plan. They didn't understand what was going on. And even Jesus raised some of them dead. And some of the apostles and the other disciples are like, I'm not going to believe it. Remember doubting Thomas. I'm, unless I can put my hands in his, in his hands, or put my hands in his hands and in his feet, I'm not going to believe it. Because they had a certain paradigm in which they, they saw or thought or expected redemption to be carried out. And then yet, when Christ came and he was resurrected from the dead and he walked among his brothers for 40 days before he ascended into heaven and then the Spirit of God fills them. They're like, oh, this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing to save people from their sin. And from that point on, we see they became gossipers of the gospel. They became announcers of good news that the long-awaited Messiah had come, had gone, and will come again. But there's even a fourth group that is just kind of briefly mentioned that, that Peter mentions here, and that is the angels. You think about it, the angels are, are watching with anticipation how God is unveiling his redemptive purposes here on earth. Peter makes this just this one statement. All, this thing, this, all these things that are transpiring are things into which angels long to look. That phrase, long to look, literally means a strong desire or an overwhelming impulse that is not easily satisfied. So we see that the angels, even though they're angelic beings, even though they have powers that we don't have, right? They, they, they are, but they're, create, they're creation, created beings by God they are on the edge of their seats with anticipation going, what is God going to do? How is God going to save people? Because ironically enough, God goes through such great lengths to save human beings from their sin, but he does not offer that same grace to angels. Isn't that kind of interesting? That when Satan chose to rebel, God doesn't give him a second chance. When a third of his, the angels fell and rebelled against God, he doesn't offer the same grace that he offers the human race. And so we see these, the other two-thirds of the angelic beings that are used by God in a variety of ways. They sit with anticipation. In fact, they are seeing the glory of God and they're worshiping God by what he does through the redemption of people. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 10. He says, through the church... Listen to this. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Think about that. God is glorifying himself and even announcing what he's doing to heavenly beings through what he's doing in his church, in you and in me. So from the beginning of time to the culmination of all things, the predominant issue at hand is the salvation of people and the restoration of his creation. 
This is the grand story of redemption. This is the grand story of redemption that you and I are a part of in some way, shape, or form. Sin corrupted everything, but God is redeeming what sin corrupted. Sin separated us from relationship with God, but God is restoring and reconciling that relationship through the sacrifice of His Son. God's salvation, let me put it this way, God's salvation of people is what he is doing to put his own glory on display. We talk about what is our mission and our vision. What is our vision? But to glorify God in all things and to enjoy him or delight in him. And yet God is bringing glory to himself by the way he is saving people from their sin. The question for you and for me this morning is, how then should we respond? How should you and I respond to this glorious salvation? Five points of application for us this morning. The first one is this. Recognize the fortunate time and place you live in redemptive history. Recognize and just think about, settle on, reflect on the fortunate time and place you live in redemptive history. Let me, let me ask you this question. Do you realize that the point in time in which you live gives you an advantage over every other generation in history? More than the prophets? More than the apostles? You live in a unique time and place in history in which we have everything so much afforded to us that others never had. I mean, think about that. The prophets only knew in part. Even the divine downloads that they got from God, they did not fully understand. If you look at, like, for example, Daniel, right? Daniel chapter 12, God's given them all these, these prophecies, all these revelations, And even Daniel acknowledges, God, I don't even understand this. And God says, it's not for you to understand, but write them down. Again, you are serving generations to come. And so Daniel is faithful to write things down, even though he himself did not fully understand. We see the the apostles, of course, had the fortunate opportunity to look back on God's redemption. They look back on what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. And we see in Acts chapter 2, for example, that when the lights finally turned on for Peter, he has this incredible, powerful, Christ-exalting sermon where thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ because he's finally getting it. But even the apostles do not live in a time and place in which you and I live today because they They were living when Christ was resurrected, but we are living in a time when it's imminent that Christ is coming back, in which the culmination of all things is is coming to an end. When is it happening? I don't know. Only God the Father knows, right? But we live as if it could be today. As I said before, angels look with anticipation at how God the Father is going to bring all things to an end, to, to, and also to a glorious new beginning, right? The point is this. Today, you and I are without excuse. You and I are really, really have no good excuses 
not to understand and to pursue with a zealousness the things that God is doing on a redemptive scale. We have every translation under the sun. My phone has every translation under the sun. You know, it's interesting. You look at Daniel, for example. Daniel goes, oh, and he bumped, he came across the scroll of Jeremiah, and it was just so refreshing to him. He's like, oh, the scroll of Jeremiah. I'm like, oh, which translation of this Jeremiah do I want to read from here? You know, it's like, I got every, every commentary I could ever want. Amazon makes that possible. We, we have every source of literature. We are a literate society. You're not dependent upon the pastor to tell you things. And yet at the same time, I wonder, are we too distracted? Could it be, and I ask this in a kind of a rhetorical sense, could it be that our problem today is not a lack of opportunity or a lack of ignorance, but an abundance of distraction? What's interesting is, in the ages of old, people would die for a page of Scripture, and then today, we kind of flippantly just kind of blow off our Bible, and I, need to, I know I need to get to that. I know I should. But the fact is, you and I live in the most advantageous time in God's redemptive history than ever was. Secondly, Second point of application, meditate and give thanks for how great a salvation God has saved you with. You know, Peter says this in verse 8, though you do not see him, you do not now, you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let me ask you this, IBC family. When was the last time you just celebrated your salvation? When was the last time you just stopped and you just said, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for, in your mercy, not giving me punishment, but instead saving me by your grace. Thank you for this eternal inheritance that awaits for me. No matter what goes on in this life, I know what you have accomplished for me. Not something I could accomplish for myself, but something you gave to me liberally, freely, because you loved me. When was the last time you stopped and were just overwhelmed by God's goodness and his salvation to you? There's a, a church in Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, where God commends this church for many things. They were truth seekers. They were a church who, who did not cave to worldly temptations. They were a church who held the, the theological boundary lines very well. But he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love and appreciation for God's grace and mercy toward you. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you. 
Is your salvation as equally exciting today as it was when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ? And if not, why? This is not a guilt trip. It's just, it's just to put our feet to the fire and go, hmm. You know, we just got to listen to testimonies before service started today, and we'll do so again next week. One thing I love about people sharing how they came to faith in Christ is the fact that when it all comes down to it, we are fully dependent upon God's wooing grace to come in and rescue us. Helpless, dependent, and God says, I love you, you're mine, and he redeems us. And I didn't do anything for it except just say thank you and receive it with gratefulness. The fact is, when we think about the gospel, which is, by the way, something that we need to kind of come back to every day, we need to understand that the gospel is not just applicable for our salvation, but it's equally as applicable for our sanctification, We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because guess what? We are prone to wander, right? Prone to leave the God that we love and that loves us. It's why we need to keep coming back to a necessary and truthful and eternal point of reference. And there's different ways to do that. The primary way is to be in the Word, to saturate yourself with the truth, to displace lies and ideas and deceits with truth. What does Jesus say? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. But on the heels of the primary way in which we are sanctified is other great works that men and women of God have been used by God to give us today, right? And one of the things we give to people is this gospel primer. This gospel primer, uh, the premise behind this gospel primer is this. Is a pastor who was pastoring for 20 years and after 20 years finally acknowledged, I don't have any salvation joy. I'm preaching this gospel, but for some reason, it's just not equating. It's all head, but it's not experiential to me. What is wrong with me? And he was moved and motivated and, and just kind of taken out in a lot of different ways. But basically, this book is a compilation of basically ways in which God, by His Spirit, wooed him back into an, a, just a healthy, vibrant, triumphant relationship with Jesus. Again, we, we always are vulnerable in losing our identity as followers of Jesus unless the Lord continually reminds us, this is who you are. Because the world is telling us all kinds of things. This is who you are and this is what you should be. And God is, and we need to listen to the voice of our shepherd and say, no, this is who you are. So meditate and give thanks for how great a salvation God has saved you with. Third, recognize that your salvation is great because Christ's sacrifice is great. Recognize that your salvation is great because Christ's sacrifice is great. What does Jesus say in John 15, 13? There's no greater love than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends. Our salvation is great because God took personal responsibility to save us from our sin. 
Salvation is, our salvation is great because God's mercy and grace are put on display not only through the sufferings of Christ, but through the glories that follow the sufferings of Christ. What is this grace? What is this mercy that we constantly get, that gets repeated in Scripture? This mercy that God offers us is really, uh, it, probably the short definition could be understood in this way, mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. What do we deserve because of our inerrant sin? Death. Eternal punishment. But as Peter would say in the very beginning, but God who is rich in mercy saved us. And he, off, and he saves us by his grace. What is grace? Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. What we don't deserve is God's acceptance, His favor, and yet that's exactly what He gives us because He loves us. So recognize that your salvation is great because the way in which you and I receive the salvation is because God went through great sacrifice, the sacrifice of His Son, so that you and I might live. It's important that we as brothers and sisters in Christ, continually come back to those necessary points of reference. Fourthly, realize that God's salvation is only great for you when you receive it by faith. We can talk about this glorious salvation, this eternal inheritance, right? But it's only great for you if first you receive it by faith. Look at how many used Peter refers to in verses 10 and 12. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, and then goes on to verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. When words are repeated over and over again, those are good things to pay attention to. Like, oh, he's, he's talking to me. He's talking to these Obviously, he's listeners in that context, but he's talking to me today. And Peter's point is this, only until you take hold of this salvation personally can you rejoice in God's salvation for eternity. The question is, have you received God's salvation? Have you received this salvation There's a story that I came across this week that I'll share with you. It's about a guy by the name of Bishop Taylor Smith who preached a sermon. He was a, a chaplain in the British Army, and he preached in a large cathedral on this text, you must be born again. He goes on to say, my dear people, do not substitute anything for new birth. You may be a member of a church, but church membership is not new birth. And our text says, you must be born again. The rector was sitting on his left, and he continued, you may be a clergyman like my friend the rector here and not be born again, but you must be born again. On his right sat the archdeacon, and pointing at him, he continued, you might even be an archdeacon like my friend here and still not be born again, but you must be born again. You might be even a bishop like myself and not be born again, but you must be born again. 
And he finished his message and went his way, but several days later he received a letter from the archdeacon which read in part, My dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I could never understand it. But when you pointed at me and said that a person could be an archdeacon and not be born again, I understood what my trouble was. Would you please come and talk with me? And of course the bishop did. He met with his archdeacon, and the archdeacon responded to the call of God on his life. But what about you? Some of you have been coming to IBC for a lot of years. But the question is, are you born again? Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a very long time. At least that's what it seems like on the surface. But the question is, are you born again? Have you received God's salvation? Some of you had some spiritual experiences that you would say, that's when, that was the point of, in which I came to faith in Christ, which we celebrate with you. But then, of course, Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. Are you born again? The fact is, God's salvation, his glorious salvation, is only glorious for you when you first receive this salvation by faith. Fifth and finally. It is when you take hold of this salvation personally that you are able to navigate through trials with joy and with hope and with peace. Why is this? Because you know what awaits you. Because you know that there's this internal inheritance that is prepared for you that far outweighs anything that will be experienced in this life. Remember what we talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right? Paul says this, these light and momentary afflictions are actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we view our current struggles and, and trials and, and hardships in our life through the lens of salvation. After all, this is the example that Jesus modeled for us, right? Even Hebrews captures this. What does it say about Jesus in Hebrews 12? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the throne of God. In other words, Jesus, though he was human and though he did not want to enter into suffering, though he did not want to be rejected by his own father, he did so. Why? Because he looked beyond what the suffering would produce. He looked beyond what would would take place. He looked at what would transpire because of his obedience to his father. He looked to the joy that was set before him. He endured the temporary so that he could bask in the eternal Is it any different for you and me? Peter encourages these believers. He encourages these believers 
to say, look beyond the suffering. It doesn't mean to put your head in the sand. It doesn't mean that you're not aware of what's going on, but look beyond it to this eternal inheritance. One pastor said it this way, and I say this in closing. Just as Jesus wore the crown of thorns and then the crown of glory, so with us who follow him. We may suffer now, but we can't even fathom all the riches which God has in store for those who love him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... uh, We are so grateful for your grace. We are so grateful for your mercy to us. We are so grateful for your love because out of love, you pursued us. Even when we are dead in our sin, you pursued us, you loved us, and you saved us. Father, we just celebrate you even now. We want to take this moment to say thank you for loving us. That we might be the recipients of your mercy. That we might have an eternal inheritance that awaits us. Not, that, not because we deserved it. Not because we could earn it. Not because we had anything inerrant within us. But because you loved us. And you're eager to pour us or lavish us with your grace. What amazing grace this is. Father, may we be a people in which we don't take for granted the salvation, but may we celebrate it every day in our lives. May we never grow tired of this great salvation that you have saved us with. May we glorify you because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.